Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here, and the sun has just come out in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller uh, in south-east London, where the sun hasn't come out, but I hope it's on its way from Wiltshire. And today we're very lucky and privileged to welcome two very distinguished cricket writers and journalists, Aslam Kota and Mo Ali from South Africa. We've invited them for a special reason. And Mo's been on the show before, but on this occasion, it's in the light of Andre Odendahl's remarks to us just a few weeks ago that there has been a period of reckoning in South African cricket, in which it's being acknowledged that far from the beginning of a rainbow cricket team after the fall of apartheid, actually uh, racism persisted in the South African national dressing room for a long time thereafter. And we've invited Aslam and also Mo, both of whom are black South African journalists, to come on and tell us about the very traumatic revelations of the last uh, few months in South Africa. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for the second invitation, Peter. Well, it's just wonderful to, I mean, as on a personal note, I just want to say um, that your book, More Than a Game, about black or coloured cricket, as it was called quite often, um, at the time in the 1950s and 60s, that generation of superlative players whose lives were completely blighted and in fact cancelled to use the modern term by apartheid I find it such a revelatory book and it was so important that you got the testimony of those fabulous cricketers from that from that era uh, so Mo tell, tell us about what has put some context into what Andre Odendahl was telling us well if you remember Michael Holding, uh, you know, first coming out with his declarations of uh, experiencing racism while he was playing for the West Indies and then uh, the whole taking of the knee uh, in, in cricket uh, prior to the start of games and then Lungi Ngidi, the South African fast bowler, who's a current member of the uh, national squad, uh, then came out in support of uh, Michael Holding and taking the knee and suggested that his South African teammates follow suit in taking the knee. Uh, since then, uh, you know, there was opposition from uh, former national cricketers, uh, the likes of uh, Puta Dipponar, Brian McMillan, Pat Simcox came out in opposition to, to taking the knee. And shortly thereafter as well, Makaya Antini came out uh, with his testimony of how he felt alienated within the national team, how he didn't feel part of the national team to the extent that uh, he would run to the stadium where the matches were being played instead of being in the bus where he would always sit at the back. And he disguised those feelings as, as communicating them as a matter of trying to keep fit rather than at the time telling people that it was actually because he felt so lonely in that team. And remember, for many years, he was the only black African player in that uh, virtually all-white national team. And uh, as a result of all these uh, revelations, the Cricket South Africa then decided to introduce a process called the Social Justice and Nation Building 
uh, hearings that is being chaired by a highly respected advocate and an ombudsman um, advocate, Dumisa Nsebeza. And he actually made a very telling comment at the start of these hearings when he said that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. And during the course of these hearings, many, many players have come forward with their testimonies. At this stage, only black players, although Mark Boucher, who is the current national coach, has since submitted an affidavit and other white players who have been implicated have been given the opportunity to make representations uh, and, and to answer the allegations that have been made against them. There have been so many allegations, uh, just a few of them. Uh, Ashwell Prince, for example, said that he felt so alienated and it was actually hurtful for him as a black player whenever the team lost that uh, you know the, the 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 defeats were blamed on so-called quota players now quotas were of course uh, you know brought in to ensure greater representativity of uh, black uh, players in the national team and uh, he, he, he communicated that they were they were never a unit they were never one uh, solid body that that was representing the country and the, the black players always had to justify them even though Ashwell prince is is currently 15th on the list of all-time uh, south african averages and uh, you know the number of players in the top uh, 15 including hashim amla herschel gibbs uh, hashim amla holding the record for the highest score by a south african batsman and uh, Paul Adams, uh, the uh, spinner, the left-arm spinner, uh, who was also one of the first uh, black players to play for the South African national team in a virtually all-white team, uh, related how he felt hurt when at a uh, fines meeting uh, during test matches uh, that uh, they would refer to him, uh, you know, in, in derogatory terms as uh, brown and the thing that hits the fan, you know. Oh. Uh, so... And then there was Kaya Zondo as well, a batsman who was included in the uh, touring squad to India in 2015. And when a place became available due to the injury of uh, one of the players in that squad, he would have been the natural replacement. And uh, suddenly Dean Elgar was flown over to take up that place, even though Kaya Zondo had been selected in the team. And uh, he actually uh, fingered A.B. de Villiers, who was the captain, for being responsible for that. So you can just see, you know, the amount of hurt that uh, black players felt that, and, and uh, that they didn't really feel part of the fabric of the national team. Aslam, many English people, I think many worldwide cricket lovers, were particularly shocked by uh, Makaya Antini's testimony. I mean, Makaya Antini took, I think, 300 test wickets for um, South Africa, and um, um, he's on the honours board at Lord's. And he was really regarded as a big success story, wasn't he? And as a sort of, almost as a poster boy for unified African cricket. And, um, you know, was that always a false impression? Was the, you know, was the legacy of apartheid much stronger than any international cricket uh, lovers knew? Richard, the type of character that uh, Makai Antini was a very exuberant, a court jester. Everybody loved his company. He seemed to exude that type of mannerisms all the time. So it always seemed that he was in a happy space. And he was very much an icon. So taken from that context, and of course the fact that he was pushed initially by Ali Bahen company to make sure that he got into the team because 
change needed to be shown and uh, it needed to be demonstrated in, 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 a, in a big way. And Makaya was certainly that, call it the ambassador in the early days. And where I see, uh, when I did hear eventually that this is how he felt, I've been on a, f- a few tours with Makaya and Tini and the South African team during commentary. And not at one stage did you ever feel that uh, he was harboring this hurt and this pain. So when it did emerge, I must say that it came as a shock as well. Many a times we did think that uh, it was out of choice that he was doing the runs to the grounds. Not at every stadium could you do that or every venue because some of the stadiums are a lot f- uh, further f- from the, uh, the hotels. Um, I know that in Cape Town and a few other places within South Africa, the grounds are actually quite a distance from, from, from the hotels in which they lived in. So I must say that uh, that came as, as quite a shock. And uh, I think that gave courage to a large number of, of black cricketers to then eventually come out into the open and talk about their experiences as well. And as Mo was just talking about uh, Lungi Ngidi's um, comment, it was just an innocent question. What did you think of uh, these guys taking the knee out in the United States? And he says, it's something that we need to think about. <laughs> he didn't say that we need to do this definitely and that cricket South Africa are responsible and... And of course, those ex-white cricketers jumped onto uh, onto his throat, and that actually exacerbated the entire issue in South Africa and brought it to reach such a crescendo that there was just no going back. And I think that's what actually gave a lot of the black cricketers a lot of courage to come through and express their their, their grievances that they had over time. I just wanted to pick up something Mo said. They're now expressing them to to a formal tribunal, a formal um, investigatory body. Can you tell us a little bit about that investigatory body? Is it just an inquiry, or will it have sort of powers to, um, you know, to make changes or impose sanctions on individuals who are well found guilty of racism? No, it's it's just an investigatory body uh, that's being chaired by an ombudsman. And uh, he, uh, the Ombudsman uh, Advocate Dumisa and Sabeza, will make recommendations. Um, many, many of the white players have since resorted to employing legal representatives to uh, represent them. And, and their statements, I understand, for example, A.B. de Villiers has uh, submitted a statement as well via his lawyers. Mark Boucher certainly had a legal representative uh, to assist him with uh, drafting his 14-page response. Uh, mm. But I think the I, I doubt whether there will be any legal ramifications or any suspensions. It's mainly to, to bring out whatever experiences and unpleasant experiences black players have had uh, during... The part since since unity uh, in in 1991, and hopefully, it will form the basis for a, a policy going forward, and so that those who are currently involved in the game can learn from these experiences and uh, hopefully provide for a better team culture. They, they've had already they've had a few uh, meetings and 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 gatherings in the bush in in the Kruger National Park, for example, to 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 discuss these issues. Uh, which is a big change. For example, Ashwell Prince mentioned, uh, you know, during a team meeting once, players w- were given the opportunity uh, to provide input on matters uh, that they wish to be discussed. And, and one of the black players, I think it may have been Robin Peterson, suggested, why don't we discuss the effects of apartheid in the Group Areas Act, which uh, allocated certain uh, areas for people to live in. And uh, that that was just summarily dismissed. And I think that, that would actually have been a very good starting point uh, had it happened uh, all those years ago.
if I can just come in here, because this somewhat answers your question. I actually, uh, in preparation for this, uh, contacted one of my legal buddies who's been quite involved in uh, these SJN hearings. And uh, he's uh, answered to the question if there's going to be any censure was as follows. The advocate will deliver a report with recommendations to the Board of Cricket South Africa. If the board agrees with the recommendations, it will implement them. And if not, they will not implement it. They may also implement the recommendations they agree with and ignore the ones they disagree with. So ultimately, it's uh, you know a, co a collation of all of the... Uh, and apparently there's over 3,000 pages of... Uh, of Good grief. Uh, yeah. Mm. Already, already gathered, and apparently they've had to reject another twenty submissions uh, because they're up against time. But uh, in the end, it seems that there will not be any censure. Although I reckon we should watch this space. Mm. It, it seems from what you're both saying that it's modelled on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission after the uh, collapse of apartheid in the 90s, isn't it? Is that right? In other words, it gives people the freedom to speak honestly and openly about the crimes they've committed even without being punished for them. Is that a fair description of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and also what is going on now? I think that's a fair comment. Um, uh, it's very important that we also note uh, something from a historic point of view, that uh, after 1991 and that uh, the euphoria of uh, what, has, what was going on in the country, not just uh, sporting-wise, but politically, and the things were moving so quickly that uh, all the constitutions were drawn up at, at the Cr Cricket South Africa level and all the units themselves. And before you knew it, South Africa were out in uh, India and then playing in the World Cup in 1992, visiting the West Indies two, a month or two later for that one-off test match. So to, to have got caught up in, in this whole euphoria was, was uh, almost blinding the entire public. And then South Africa win the 1995 Rugby World Cup. In 1996, they're going to win the African the Soccer Championships, which they were not even qualified to play, but because uh, Morocco had pulled out. South Africa were then brought into the tournament and they hosted it and eventually went on to win it. So you can just imagine the, the, the positive. And in between all of that, we had gone to the polls in 1994. So uh, it was quite something to absorb. But what did happen was in between all of this, there were lots of issues going on in all of the units from a racism point of view. And it came to the fore in 1997, 1998, where... The likes of uh, Imtiaz Patel, uh, who was a member of uh, Cricket South Africa at that stage, and also Andre Urendal, had to then set up this uh, uh, a transformation uh, agenda. And they went to all of the units around the country, and uh, it took something like eight months in which to gather every official uh, at senior position and uh, got into meetings. And Peter, this was very interesting because this was an attempt at healing because of all of this stuff similar to this Black Lives Matter issue that, that then eventually started emerging and evolving, that uh, they realized that they needed to do, go through this whole process. And in the end, there was a lot of forgiveness, a lot of hugging, a lot of tears, believe me. And uh, it seemed that it was ushering a new era uh, following the 1994 elections. And 
Out of that, the Transformation Charter emerged, which was then drawn up and accepted by Cricket South Africa, and it was announced during a, a series against the West Indies, where the then president made the announcement, Raymond White was his name, made the announcement to a live audience at the ground on the field that Cricket South Africa accepting this new charter. But he also ended that occasion uh, in saying that, but they will not be dictated by the politicians as to how things will go on from here on. And of course, uh, we've seen that since then, not much has changed. And uh, I don't think management at all levels actually took the responsibility of educating you know, the masses who are playing at a higher level. Mo and I chatted about this as well, I think, last night. And that's where, the, the, where I think Cricket South Africa actually failed. And uh, now we are in this process, and I'm going to call it the second attempt at healing with, those, with these SJN hearings. If, if I could just add to what Aslam is saying, uh, I, don't, I don't think people realize how pervasive apartheid was in the lives of South Africans. And, you know, it was a system, the, a, a hierarchical system, that basically your, your skin color defined where you would end up in, in life in South Africa, whether it was what kind of job you could do, what school you could go to, what education you could receive, uh, where you could live, where you could play. And, you know, just to undo the serious effects and impact apartheid had on, on the psychology of each and every South African, because even white, whites thought of themselves with maybe a few exceptions, they were brought up to think that they were superior, they were the superior race. And then in terms of the hierarchy, you had the Asians and the coloreds and, and the black Africans right at the bottom. So the education system, which was based on, it was called Christian national education, was based on that premise that whites were superior and the other race groups had to fall into line and were next in the pecking order. And it was in that context that, that white South Africans grew up and they had the superiority complex. And, and you know, for them to, 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 to get rid and, and discard that superiority, superiority complex is going to take some time. And for many blacks as well to discard that inferiority complex, mm -hmm. which is why Steve Beaker was so important with the black consciousness movement in the 70s to try and instill in pride into the black people. And the, the, the psychological impact of apartheid is so vast and so pervasive. It's going to take a long time for us to get rid of that. I'd be very interested, Mo, in that case, to know what, where is public opinion at the moment in South Africa? Is uh, white, white opinion and black opinion? Is, is, is there a feeling that everybody's done enough or is there a feeling that there's a crisis? You have a division within white opinion where many, many white people are saying, yes, you know, we need to atone and apologize for the hurt that we've caused and use that as a basis to move forward. On the other side, on the other extreme, you have uh, white people still saying that happened in the past. Why do you keep looking back? We need to look forward. And, you know, cricket will collapse without white people in this country, uh, Using the example of, of Zimbabwe, we will go the same way as Zimbabwe if, uh, you know, white people are marginalized uh, by continuing with these kinds of hearings. We just need to look forward and go, you know, uh, progress. And, and, and on the other end, black opinion, mainly the vast majority are saying this is what's been happening. 
people need to be sanctioned. Mark Boucher needs to be uh, fired as the national coach for his involvement in, in these allegations of racism. Uh, so bl- black opinion is, is largely united in that uh, they, they believe action needs to be taken. And, uh, you know, they also uh, empathize seriously with uh, the revelations of the black cricketers who have experienced racism firsthand. And many, many have experienced their, their own ex- personal experiences of racism in other facets of South African life. Of course, so that's a that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Is it is is what going on inside cricket a metaphor for the situation in South Africa itself? I.e., racism has continued. I speak. I ask this as an outsider. Yes, uh, for example, the economy is still largely controlled by white capital. Schools are still. White education is still vastly superior. I, I use the term white education. Traditional white schools are still being uh, attended by the white population, and uh, it's moved more into a class uh, separation. Now, the, those in the, the the rising black and 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 uh, other race group middle classes are able to attend, but the vast majority of uh, black people have been left behind in terms of their education and as a result of the employability and the ability to move up the uh, economic and class uh, divide. So uh, the remnants of apartheid are still very much there because you must remember black townships, black people were moved from close to their working areas in the city centers of the country. They were moved to 25, 30, 40 kilometers away uh, into these townships where they were barren, uh, they had to start new communities, and these people now have to spend hours traveling into their various uh, areas to go and find work. Banks still have a problem in, in lending money, for example, for young black uh, entrepreneurs to start up their businesses. So the impact of racism is still very much prevalent in South Africa. Well, that takes us on to something that um, Andrew and Peter Hayne wrote about in their book, Pitched Battles. Uh, at the end of it, they said... Um, made a very significant suggestion that um, basically white people are still the gatekeepers for um, black people to enter sport at the top level, cricket, rugby in particular, because um, they control access to these elite schools where um, I, I think um, McIrantini went to one at the end of his, uh, as, as a teenager. And they um, so basically they were, say, they were arguing that, um, you know, that, it, that, as I say, that whites are still you know, the controllers of the pipeline into the top levels of cricket and rugby and other sports. Is is that your assessment too? To a, to a large degree, yes, simply because uh, the elite white schools have the facilities, uh, they have the coaching staff, and uh, what they normally do, maybe to satisfy their consciences, maybe to provide genuine opportunities, is uh, that they scout uh, among the... Uh, lesser privileged schools where they where they pick out talented players and uh, give them scholarships, fully paid bursaries to attend these schools and thereby advance uh, their careers and, and uh, allow them, which eventually allows them to, to, to uh, progress to provincial and maybe international level. But I would put the blame firmly on the at the doorstep of the South African government because the South African government has not provided the level of uh, improvements in the infrastructure of schools in townships. 
There are no sporting facilities at those schools. Uh, in fact, the South African government stopped physical education as a subject in the uh, late 1990s, which was criminal as far as I'm concerned. You, you cannot do that because the first experience of most children in organized sport is at school. And for government to have not fostered and, and, and subsidized and financed uh, the organization of sport at school level is criminal, and which is why you're going to continue having to rely on these privileged schools to produce the talent at schools level because Vernon Philander, Ashwell Prince are, are notable examples simply because they were just too talented uh, and, and the talent allowed them to bypass that, having to go to these privileged schools. But by and large, the, the talent uh, factory does go through these uh, former white schools who have the facilities. In fact, just as an example, the, the Western Province Provincial Team practices at, at the indoor nets of one of these schools, bishops, mm. <laughs> because yeah. Newlands doesn't have an indoor facility. That, mm. That's how privileged these schools are. Just touching on that uh, point that was made in the book Bish Battles, uh, I've made a note here that uh, from a control point of view, Apart from what's happening at schools level and where Cricket South Africa and all of their units are now focusing all of their attention on private schools because that's where the pipeline is. And along with the government not concentrating on the wider South African public, which is criminal. But coming back to this point here, how does it still remain that the control is still in white hands as far as cricket is concerned? And what has happened is it seems that there's a bit of a smokescreen in most of the provinces, if not all. But I know here in Johannesburg what has happened is after a number of attempts and a number of CEOs, they eventually managed to transform the offices. That means the people that you are employing there, from your young coaches to administrative staff, everything that uh, is far as everything as far as operations is concerned, they've transformed that tremendously. So from the outside looking in, it looks as though everything's fine because we've got the quota system, we've got the transformation uh, and the quota targets that are relevant to all teams at all levels, including the, the national side. So it all seems okay. But you still get the feeling that uh, it's being manipulated from the outside, from the top, and there are people involved. Because when it comes to AGMs, when it comes to elections, when it comes to votes and all of that, it still seems to be manipulated in some way. And I do understand that from a democratic point of view, you are allowed to canvas and things like that. But this still just goes beyond it. And I speak from a, a Gauteng point of view, uh, Gauteng, which was previously Transvaal. And uh, we still see these type of issues, you know, emerge from time to time. The other issue, the other thing that I wanted to mention is um, the government's responsibility for providing facilities in uh, formerly black areas, we'll call them in the new country. I remember John Major, the then Prime Minister of, of, yes. uh, of, of Great Britain, came to South Africa and he was here during an England tour. It may have been in 1995, that famous tour when Atherton pulled off that uh, masterful uh, innings to draw that one test match at the Wanderers. £50,000 was donated to the Alexander Township to improve the facility, which had just about been laid bare uh, for preparation. And uh, it just seems that all of the responsibility 
with the government, and it's always the excuse, even down to our council level here in Indonesia, where I live, is that the emphasis is on schools, on education, uh, it's on uh, providing housing, and and all the necessary things to try and get the country back to uh, where it's, where it needs to be in the new dispen- under the new dispensation. But they completely ignored the uh, facilities. And we have a decent facility. Uh, I know that Peter Obon is very familiar with uh, Mr. Yusuf Garda and Morris Garda and those type of people. They eventually, they did play on this particular field. And at one stage, when we were moved out through the Separate Amenities Act and the Group Areas Act, the government then or the local council did erect a wonderful stadium here in Indonesia. But what has happened to it in the last 20 years since uh, democracy is absolutely criminal. I played on it. I enjoyed the facility like any white player would have in the old days, uh, going to the northern suburbs here in Johannesburg to enjoy a perfectly manicured uh, turf pitch and outfield. It is nothing like its former self. Mohammed will tell you that some of his buddies who played for the Western province were never asked in those days... Which was your favorite outing? Which, which, which of the fixes did you look forward to? They would say, we can't wait to get to Lanesia because that's where we felt we are playing at uh, a quality facility. So that has gone down. We've been begging for lights, indoor facilities, because we are actually 30 kilometers out of Johannesburg. By the time the working class get to Lanesia, the sun has set. So you can't even put in a, practice, a decent day's practice. So what I'm trying to illustrate here mm-hmm. is that ours is a microcosm of what is uh, out there generally in the public. And there's the responsibility and the funding from the government and uh, how they've ignored uh, school sport and facilities all around has been criminal. And we've just come out of the uh, Tokyo Olympics where three medals were won two in the swimming, one in the surfing, two white ladies, and uh, that because they were able to use facilities outside of South Africa to hone their skills. And uh, we then heard that uh, they were very disappointed with with the rest of the performances because uh, some of the athletes in the past uh, Olympic Games have done pretty well. And what is the reason that we've regressed so much? They refuse to see that it, it is their fault. And Mohammed is uh, very categoric there, and I agree with him, that that responsibility uh, has been left to the sporting bodies. Now, as, a, as, as an example... Can I just get that, quite, get that fact quite clear? So how did the, the, the medals that South Africa won, which is a great sporting nation, South Africa, by, historically, in the Olympics, were, did you say just three medals? Three medals, one gold, and two two silvers. And the and the people and you say it was white people who won the uh, medals. Two ladies. Two yeah. white ladies. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there was any any black any blacks winning any medals? No, unfortunately, none. So in other words, uh, that really is a, a huge right. statement. I hadn't really woken up to that. So what you're telling us is it's not just cricket which we've been talking about. It's much more universal than that. That in the Olympics. The medals all went to white people. Correct. And the reason I make this point is that when it comes to the government, they can't only be looking at cricket or rugby or soccer. They need to look at sport all around because now we are, we are being represented internationally, unlike what happened in the days prior to uh, 
the democracy in 1994, where most of the sporting codes were then uh, banished from international sport and international competition. We're back in there. And uh, I always cite there is still What you're saying is that, in effect, although not, by, not legally, apartheid still operates in South African sport. As um, uh, just point out that uh, South Africa's uh, Olympic medal tally was uh, equaled by San Marino, um, the little Italian uh, state, landlocked state in the centre of Italy, uh, with a population of thirty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Mm. No, it's kind yeah. of if you think what a great sporting nation South Africa is, the, the questions that answer that that raises. I, can I come back though, Aslan, to this? extraordinarily troubling thing, I, which I find I find it very hard to get my head around, that a remark made by a black South African cricketer about taking the knee, a South African cricketer in a post-apartheid society, should somehow be controversial. I must say that... Uh, uh... We were watching all of this happening around the world and suddenly, as I said, an innocent, innocent question to young Ngiri, who you can imagine as a new South African, I'll call him. There's a term for them, Mohammed Mary member. And uh, for him to come out so strongly to say that we need to consider doing this because it's necessary. Uh, the backlash from uh, the, the likes of Simcox and Buddha Dupinar. I was one of the first to react on Twitter and uh, my reaction was that uh, if they felt that this was uh, something that shouldn't have happened and it was uh, a privilege that they, they, they had foregone as, as white players, then uh, they didn't use their fame in the positive way where they could have actually helped the, the situation in South Africa. Instead of that, they exacerbated the issue of white and black. And that, as I said, the, 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 the way the... Uh, the uh, avalanche had just continued to roll along was was then beyond any one of our imaginations that every day or virtually every hour there were new revelations coming through and uh, yet it was uh, something that was so simple that needed to be done especially given our history as South Africans where we come from where we out of all the countries around the world had a statute uh, on the statute books apartheid governing a country for close to 60 years. And uh, it was just amazing that uh, it didn't almost impact the white community as it did with us. You asked the question earlier, how did, uh, why is it that some of the white uh, players haven't, uh, didn't react? And to me, the, 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 my work takes me around to many places and I have many white clients. And I must say that uh, from a general point of view, Everyone saw the South African team out on the television or live at the grounds and reading about them daily or watching them on television. And what they got the picture that everyone else did, that everything is hunky-dory, it's all there. So I must say that many of them were absolutely shocked that these things were still happening in the new South Africa. So that point I think I had to make, because just to give it some kind of balance, that uh, from amongst my white colleagues and, and, and uh, associates, they were pretty perturbed at the fact that this was still going on and something needed to be done. There's been a lot of silence from uh, the white community. I must say that even the writers have realized their role, some of them especially, and I'm talking of the white writers, 
who initially may have been embedded in the system in the early 90s, as they were during the 80s when the rebel tours were happening. But uh, I think over the years, they've seen the light. They've seen the necessity of all the regulations that have been put in place in a unique country, in a unique situation. And uh, so they're now trying to perpetuate uh, and trying to encourage a different brand of thinking. But I must say that they are in the minority as far as the writers are concerned. But just to reiterate that I did notice without uh, hesitancy that there were a number of uh, colleagues that did feel that these things happening in the new South Africa is very, very disturbing and it needs to be eradicated. So has there been any, I mean, who are the, the, it was Simcox and Macmillan who were the two primary leaders of the opposition to taking the knee, is that right? Yes, and uh, it all started because uh, Buddha Dipanar, and I'm quite certain that he may have had some experience with either a friend or a family who were farmers and may have experienced uh, an unfortunate incident. I don't know whether it was, you know, had gone as far as uh, being a murder or whatever. But he said, if we're taking a knee for uh, Black Lives Matter, then what about farmers' lives and white lives? And I think that's just what that took the whole discussion to a completely different level. And being in South Africa, it certainly, as Mohammed said earlier on, created a huge dividing line. If if I may just add to to what Aslam uh, was saying, uh, shortly uh, after Lungi Ngiri's comment, uh, there was a uh, festival of one-day cricket, and Graham Smith, who had just been appointed as CEO, and uh, Faf Duplessis, who had just retired as national captain, took the knee. Mm. And they received death threats as a result of that from no. members within their white yeah. com- There was a massive outcry from, from members of the white community. They didn't remain silent. They actually came out in strong opposition and criticized Graham Smith and Faf Duplessis for doing that. Mm. And to take that point a little further, Peter, what has happened since is that, again, what we saw happen in England last year uh, with the West Indians, West Indians touring and uh, Michael Holdings... Uh, great statement. The, the brave statement that he had made. Uh, we really felt that in South Africa, when the season started, that we'd see that happen. And unfortunately, because it was still a very fractured cricket South Africa still in the throes of uh, who's going to be chucked out of the, the corridors of, uh, of control. And all of that, as you know, the shenanigans that had continued, there was no leadership. And the players then decided that uh, they will leave it to the individuals to decide whether they wanted to take the knee. And when some of them decided that they will not, that, was, that also didn't go down very nicely with the general public. And so what is the situation on a, when South Africa goes out to play? Does, it take the, does the national team take the knee or not? There's only a few who are who have been taking the knee. Others have uh, exercised, as they say, their right not to. Christ. And as we've seen from time to time, even with the Grand Prix drivers, where some of them have just uh, held the first up, uh, I must say that it's it's the the type of decisions that need to be made to made to to unite the country and to make them think differently uh, has not happened. And I'm hoping that with the new leadership that we'll see a lot more of that happening under Lawson Naidu, who is now the new uh, president of uh, Cricket South Africa, uh, and who has a wonderful history of, of uh, first of all, he's, he's uh, an academic, he's also a lawyer, and that uh, he's been pretty involved 
in uh, much of what has happened during the change in the country from the early 1990s. So I'm hoping that he'll take the lead and encourage uh, unity amongst the players, because if it's not seen there on television by the national, by the masses, then we will still remain fractured as a society. And I see that as a very, very important decision that they need to make. So does that mean there uh, is there a new South African cricket board? Cricket South Africa is there now a formal board again? It was an, an ad hoc administration until recently, wasn't it? No, it's uh, it's now a constituted uh, new board. Right. They've also uh, managed to sort out the uh, the issues around the uh, executive and non-executive directors and also the type of power they would have. The previous non-executive and executive directors didn't have enough power, and that is why the previous administration somehow seemed to run roughshod over a lot of important decisions, some of which concerned transformation. And uh, there's, that you'll need a different program for that entirely, Richard. Oh, but oh, uh, we, do, we do have... <laughs> but there is a need. It's, it's now a formal board again, so to say. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, yes. I could ask you, I mean, it's so harrowing that all this is going on in Nelson Mandela's South Africa. Uh, tell us about some of the examples. That's, I mean, Paul Adams, the, fl- the frog in the blender, that, that wonderful mm-hmm. spinner. He, tell us about his uh, revelations, man. Well, Paul, if I could just give you some background, uh, mm-hmm. Paul, Paul Adams comes from uh, the St. Augustine's Club. That, uh, Basil As Basil Dolivera did. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I knew that would light you up, Peter. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he, he he was young. He was plucked out of nowhere virtually. Um, and Eddie Barlow first, uh, the late Eddie Barlow first saw him at the Nets at Newlands and recommended uh, being Eddie Barlow, you know, being a man that uh, was uh, always never averse to taking a chance. He would he would sometimes uh, have Dennis Hobson, who was the tail ender, opening the batting just to get quick runs. That's the kind of uh, person Eddie Barlow was. That's the kind of cricketer Eddie Barlow yeah. was. And... Um, you know, he recommended that this young 18-year-old be brought into the national structure very, very quickly. And uh, Paul Adams uh, was was young at the time. He was one of the few uh, black players in, in the national setup at the time. And uh, he subsequently revealed at these hearings uh, that he felt incredibly hurt. Uh, you know, there were meetings uh, that uh, were chaired by Mark Boucher during test matches or after test matches in which fines were issued. And uh, during these meetings, uh, he there was a song that they referred to him as uh, Brown and the thing that hits the fan. And, um, you know, he, he just felt incredibly hurt by that. And he actually called out Mark Boucher at these hearings. Uh, and uh, there were a number of other unnamed players involved as well. And uh, many many people have since questioned why only come out with it now, some 20 years later. But you can imagine a young mm. Paul Adams in that national structure playing alongside the likes of uh, Brian McMillan, Alan Donald, uh, Andrew Hudson, all, all those seasoned professionals. So for him to have spoken out at that time would have been very, very difficult. And uh, for him to have come out now certainly has uh, opened up a lot of other people, uh, established white players who now have to come and account for what they've done. So tell us how, how has Mark Boucher reacted to the public charge at the tribunal from Paul Adams that he that he said the things he said Mark Boucher has admitted uh, to uh, singing those songs and and uh, you know he he says in in retrospect 
that uh, he didn't realize the hurt that he had caught, caused uh, Paul Adams and, and the other black players in the Singing team. a racist song. Singing yeah. a racist song. And uh, also he didn't realize the hurt that he had caused uh, and, and him, him and his fellow players had caused uh, black players in the team by referring to them as quota players, especially when the <laughs> team lost. Uh, he, he, he says that, uh, you know, having come out of the apartheid era, having grown up in the apartheid era, Perhaps they should have been made more culturally aware. And, and to a certain extent, one has to agree with him. Because as I explained earlier on, the, the nature of the apartheid system was such that groups were kept together. They didn't interact with each other. Uh, and, and the white group was made to feel, uh, they were taught, they were brought up to feel superior to other people in this country. And perhaps that is a failing of Cricket South Africa in not sensitizing the players and, and uh, you know schooling them in the issues of transformation. They should perhaps have done that instead of just focusing on the national team. For example, just immediately after Unity, when the black Western province and the white Western province uh, provincial cricketers gathered together at a training session, uh, the late Hilton Ackerman was the coach. And according to many of the black players, they were completely disregarded by Hilton Ackerman. They were just used as, as fodder bowlers at the nets. Whereas the the, the, the established white players could bat for as long as they want to. They, they were just treated completely differently, and that still rankles with them. So those should have been the warning signs already right at the start of unity for Cricket South Africa to intervene and to educate the white players in particular about the needs of transformation and for them to change their attitude. But they didn't. It's astonishing they didn't. that... Absolutely. Yeah. They didn't, didn't they? They... After Unity, they had they had experience of playing. Many of them had experience of playing overseas for the first time against black sides and with and with black players in the in the same team. There's they would have any any of those who played county cricket in that era would have would have had that experience. That have been, you know, the apartheid came to an end and they they rejoined the world. They rejoined a multiracial world and they had plenty of opportunities. It seems to me to educate themselves or be educated themselves. Without there was a chap around the, the place. Do you remember there was a chap called Nelson Mandela? He had a few <laughs> things to say about. Um, <laughs> uh, I I find it. I must say it seems extraordinary. Tell us about the story of um, Ashwell Prince. Yeah, Ashwell um, felt strongly. Uh, he he actually. Uh, grew up, his formative years were spent in Port Elizabeth and he grew up playing his junior cricket under the banner of the South African Council on Sport, which was uh, strongly opposed to apartheid, strongly opposed. Uh, they were the, one of the uh, forerunners, they, they were one of the main organizations involved in isolating apartheid South Africa from international sport. So he comes from that background. Um, and he felt that as a player who was fortunate enough uh, to straddle the two eras of uh, playing under the SACOS banner and then playing, uh, having the opportunity to play international sport, being fortunate, he always he always recognizes that that he was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to play international sport uh, post isolation, and he felt that he actually went out to represent those players who were denied the opportunities, the likes of the. Uh, Dukka Beds and, and the Gulama Beds and the Loboa Beds and many others who, who were denied the opportunity. He felt that he is now representing them. But always, he, he also felt that uh, the impression was given to him that he's only in the team because of the color of his skin. 
notwithstanding that he was an outstanding player. And uh, he recalls the incident when he was first called up to the South African team uh, to play Australia in, uh, I think it was 2002. He made 94 in the uh, South African A-team game against Australia. Graham Smith made a duck. And the other contenders all uh, made single figures. So he was called up when there was an injury to Justin Ontong. Prior to the Australia, he was, in fact, he had left uh, Johannesburg and come back to Cape Town and uh, subsequently re- received a call to come up immediately to Johannesburg to, to join the team based on that 94 that he had scored. And uh, he, he says he didn't even get a welcome from the coach. He had to go straight. He arrived in the evening uh, before the test match. He arrived in Johannesburg, had to go straight onto the pitch, didn't uh, get a welcome from his teammates. And uh, he always felt that since that time, Graham, atti- uh, Graham Smith had a terrible attitude towards him, um, maybe feeling that uh, Graham Smith, that is, he-, he should have been selected for that test match against Australia before Ashwell Prince got selected. Mm. Um, and he always felt more comfortable playing outside South Africa. There was, he said there was never a unified team culture. There was never a unified team. It was always although maybe not uh, overtly uh, expressed, but the black guys were always made to feel that they were in the team because of the color of their skin and not because of the quality of of the cricket they could produce. And yet, Ashwell Prince, uh, according to the latest statistics, is 14th on the all-time list of of South African batsmen in terms of averages. And he says he's never... They're talented. They've always had to... as, As a player, he always felt that he had to prove himself over and over again, whereas players of less quality who were whites got the opportunities and nothing was ever said when they failed. Just to add to what Mohammed has said is that the, these revelations by Ashwell Prince were, were, were quite remarkable. Uh, he, goes on to, he, he went on to mention that uh, 2007, the World Cup in the West Indies, South Africa, in the semi-final up against Australia, and they performed dismally with the bat. In fact, they were dismissed for under 150 in that semi-final, uh, which to me was uh, more heartbreaking than what had happened at Edgbaston in 2009, because here was an opportunity to, to, to redeem themselves as a team. But anyway, uh, when they got into the dressing room, it was the non-white players that were blamed for that defeat. So he speaks about that as well. And then in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, the tour to Australia, uh, he injured his finger uh, in the nets and was unable to uh, make it for the first test. It, eventually, it was seen that it was uh, it was a huge fracture. So JP Dumini then made uh, the, the the team in place of uh, Ashville Prince. He got a wonderful 50 in the second innings, which South Africa then went on to score that 414 in that memorable win. Then, of course, went on to uh, Melbourne. Uh, two weeks or a week later and scored a magnificent 166, a counter-attacking innings, which saw South Africa actually then get a lead and went on to win. And uh, we know that from a selection point of view, that the incumbent, once uh, recovered from an injury, will then regain his position. But such was the performance of J.P. Dumini that uh, the selectors were reluctant to actually remove him. And eventually what did happen is when they returned to South Africa, uh, they had to now look to make a position, to find a position for Ashwell Prince. And uh, you almost felt that he was a sacrificial lamb because uh, he was then made to open. 
but given the type of character that this young man was, went on to score a magnificent 160, I think it was, as an opener. And uh, just to ram home the point that uh, he was always deserving of his position. So he certainly made that as uh, a big talking point in uh, many of his uh, issues that he raised during his uh, testimony. And it was quite revealing. And one short story I'd like to just share is that uh, in 2005, uh, on the tour to the West Indies, he was uh, quite busy as a young player trying to establish himself and keeping very fit. So on a number of occasions, meeting him in the gym, having lots of chats. And then he took uh, time on a number of occasions at dinner time to come and actually join me at the table to ask me about the history of South African cricket because I had just written this book and he wanted to know a whole lot more. And that Your book was on the tr Transvaal, wasn't it, uh, Aslam, I think I'm right in saying? Yes, Peter. The uh, book that we were, both Mo and I were actually summoned or, or commissioned by Cricket South Africa to write uh, the history on our uh, 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 non-white history in our provinces, respective provinces, and I did that in 2003, just before the World Cup. And uh, Ashwell certainly had lots of questions, and to me, that revealed a personality who was not just there focused on his cricket, you know, almost one-eyed towards his cricket, but always aware of his surroundings and wanted to know more. And that is why uh, in that meeting that Mo spoke about, some years later, where they were asked to, to uh, raise any topic of discussion, and when they said, let's talk about where we have just come from, and that was Robin Peterson that raised that issue, it was shot down by the uh, whoever it was in the dressing room, and that didn't happen. But it was from those time, from that time that I had chatted with uh, Ashwald that I realized that there was more than just a budding cricketer here. He was clearly very intent on knowing about his history and our history. Well, we've heard about the, um, the you know, white cricketers who've been very defensive about their um, record in racism. They've been very defensive at the Commission of Inquiry that's going on at the moment. But um, are there any white players and administrators who've um, voluntarily tried to atone for their past role and... Um, and uh, admitted error and failure or worse in um, perpetuating the legacy of apartheid. Indeed, uh, thankfully uh, there are. And uh, one of them is uh, the great uh, former quick bowler, Vince van der Bijl, the giant who had such a fantastic season with Middlesex and uh, was one of the leading wicket takers in the old Curry Cup. Uh, he, he certainly was one of the best bowlers in the world uh, during his peak in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, he, uh, in, especially in his capacity as a member of uh, the Marleybone Cricket Club, the MCC's Overseas Development uh, Committee, has managed to secure funds from them. And uh, he's helped a school in uh, the Masipumalele Township, which is close to... Uh, the idyllic area of Hout Bay on, on Cape Town's uh, south coast. And uh, he's managed to stimulate sporting development uh, at that school. Uh, for example, the, the, the school's uh, 
representative teams didn't have playing kit and he organized for them to have a uniform. Uh, he's organized for them to get coaches in there. He's organized for nets to be built, soccer, artificial soccer pitches. He's organized with the, uh, he's used his influence extremely well. Uh, for example, with the players from the British Lions to, to, to come and visit, uh, national players to come and visit to inspire the kids. Uh, girls now are cycling for the first time, whereas they were told by their parents cycling is not for girls <laughs> in, in that township. And in fact, Vince reckons and, and is also organized for uh, those schools' teams to play with uh, their white counterparts the, from the richest schools. And it's organ- also organized for those schools to come and visit their, their colleagues in the township to see what life is. He's really organized very, very well. He's harnessed the uh, finances of uh, members, influential members in the white community to put their finances in there to stimulate and to assist uh, the, these kids in the townships. And similarly, uh, Gary Kirsten, who had such a fantastic career as oh, uh, nice. an opening yeah. batsman and as a World Cup winning coach with India. Uh, he's uh, really, you know, gone into the townships and, and not only has he, uh, you know, put money in there, but he's gone himself into the township to, to, to build the facilities to uh, help uh, stimulate the kids. And, and he said himself that he cannot believe the amount of talent that is available in Kailitsha Township. It just needs to be harnessed. It needs to be given the opportunity to flourish, and South African cricket will certainly grow. So those are two very, very good examples. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Vince van der Bell played with the likes of of other cricketers during that era who are still in denial. They they still feel that they were denied the opportunity by apartheid to play international cricket rather than looking at, you know, what happened during the apartheid cricket, why they were denied. Um, but but Vince van der Bell and Gary Kirsten are certainly uh, two fantastic examples of of white of what white sportsmen and and generally you know people with influence in the white community can do to assist transformation in this country. That's so heartwarming. Well, that's a very inspiring note to end on, and uh, we hope um, Vincent and Gary uh, point the way forward for South African cricket. Well, well, thank you so much for both of you for such a somber but thought provoking. Uh, conversation and there's still some hope perhaps we should take a cricket team to the to, to the townships and uh, and see these young players coming good absolutely i think uh big vince will certainly welcome you and, and the kids have taken a liking to to him as well you know he's almost like a father figure in in the townships and and similarly gary kirsted as well i played in alexandra uh and soweto um lords and commons went there just after the end of apartheid very inspiring places to play in. For now, though, it has to be goodbye from me in southeast London, where it's still a bit overcast and we're still waiting for the sunshine from Wiltshire. What a fascinating, um, so much to ponder, but what a fascinating conversation. Um, it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn, in a, it's getting a bit darker here in Wiltshire. And uh, thank you for having me too. And uh, yeah, the sun is still trying to peep its head through this a cloud that we've had in Cape Town. It's a winter, the last remnants of winter. But uh, certainly, Peter and uh, Richard, it will be fantastic to host you guys in the townships, and I'm sure the kids would love to see you too.